Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. And if you were here last night, you'll say, hi, what a pleasure it is really to be here at Crescent Church again, because I know I've been here a few times before, both uh, in the flesh and on the screen uh, during the COVID months and uh, years. So it's great to be with you and to be celebrating this fantastic 150th anniversary and birthday, uh, cake and candles and all, and musicians. And I want to bring you greetings as well. Uh, as has just been mentioned, um, I work with the Langham Partnership, uh, training people in biblical preaching and in biblical scholarship and uh, pro providing books all around the world, including in some of the places that we're thinking of so desperately these days, like Ukraine. We have uh, Langham scholars in Ukraine who are still there, and the, the, their families in some cases have been able to get out, but uh, most of them are still there and serving and working and struggling to help refugees uh, and others even in the seminaries, which have, some of which have been bombed already. Uh, so it's very tragic things going on there. So greetings from Langham and also from my own home church, um, All Souls Church London uh, in Langham Place in London. I know that a number of folk from Northern Ireland, including from here, when you come over to London, often come and visit us on a Sunday. And uh, that's a great joy to see you there. So thank you for your fellowship uh, in the gospel and for the kingdom of God around the world. It's good to be with you. Now, when I was asked to come and preach on these two services at the beginning of your week of celebration, and I was told the theme was looking back and moving forward, I was sort of thinking around in the Bible, well, where, where would you go to, to think about something like that? And I, two occasions in the Bible story occurred to me when there was indeed celebration uh, in one case because of a building and all that it meant to the people, and in the other case, uh, looking forward to what God was going to do in the past, in the future. In both these cases, there's a focus on God's faithfulness to His promises in the past, and also a focus on God's Word as the foundation for the life of God's people in the future, which is why it was so good to hear the children being encouraged to realize that lots of things change over 100 years uh, but God's Word does not, and we need to be holding on to that. So the two occasions are, one uh, is the dedication of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, and we're going to go there now. So if you have a Bible, uh, you might want to turn that up, uh, uh, or if you still got a, if you still actually have a Bible, you know those book things, or maybe you've got it in a tablet or a phone or something, but 1 Kings chapter 8 would be great. And then this evening, we're going to go to Nehemiah, and not to the building of the walls, which everybody knows about in Nehemiah, but to that great celebration of the Word of God in Nehemiah chapter 8, a great occasion when Ezra and Nehemiah bring the people together to celebrate and to recommit themselves into the future, which is very much what you're doing as a church today. So here, first of all, then, are some thoughts from 1 Kings chapter 8. And let me just set the background before we read bits of it. I'm not going to read it all uh, now because it's quite a, a long chapter. But the context is this, that the great day had arrived. Uh, it was seven years in the waiting uh, while Solomon had been building this temple, which was really, in many ways, the climax of his father's reign, the reign of David, who wanted to build a temple, but God says, you're not going to do it, but your son will. Uh, and this building, this temple, which probably wasn't, you know, it's probably quite a bit smaller than this building we're in now, uh, it was, of course, the, 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 the replacement for the tabernacle that the people had had in the wilderness, and therefore was the symbol of the presence of God in the midst of His people. 
This would be the place where God's name would be, where God would be worshipped, where the sacrifices would take place to atone for sin, uh, and where the songs and psalms would be sung as the people gathered for worship in the courts and so on. Uh, and on this day, we read about in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon has a great occasion of thanksgiving and praise and food and drink and everything else in order to celebrate that and to pray to God. And what I want us to notice in this, in this prayer are some aspects of what Solomon prays that are significant for us, particularly in terms of the church's mission. And I know that one of the things that uh, David Farrell was suggesting to me was that we need to maintain the focus of this church on mission. And I know that uh, the Brethren movement throughout its history has had a strong uh, impulse into mission, cross-cultural mission. Now, you might say, well, Solomon wasn't much of a missionary, was he? Well, no, of course he wasn't. I'm not suggesting that Solomon was a missionary. I don't think he would have got through any mission selection board with his 700 wives or whatever it was. Um, so I'm not suggesting that he was a missionary, but what he prays has some quite remarkable truths and understandings of God within it, which are foundational for our commitment as Christian believers to God's work in the world. And the first that I want us to see is that he speaks about the God who keeps his promises. Uh, and that's an important thing to get hold of, isn't it? So let me now turn you to uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, and I'm starting here at verse 22, where he begins his prayer. So verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, that is Yahweh, Jehovah, the, the personal name of God, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in the earth below, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in, in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father, and with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled, as it is to this day. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises that you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me uh, faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. God who keeps his promises. And Solomon actually acknowledges that that is something which was unique about the God of Israel. See how he says it there in verse 23, Lord, there's no God like you. All the other gods are not like this. You are the God who, above all other characteristics, you're the God who keeps your word. You speak your word and you keep it, and there's no other God like you. That phrase, no other God like you, is actually probably a reflection of the book of Deuteronomy, where... Uh, Moses had said to the Israelites, Israel, you need to know and remember that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. There is no other God beside him, and so there is no other God like him. He is this great God, no other God but him, and he keeps his covenant promises. Now, of course, uh, Solomon here in this particular passage refers to God's promise to David, his father which he had now fulfilled by building the temple. 
But supposing we'd been able to sort of get up alongside Solomon after this prayer is all over and the, the bun fight has begun and everybody is eating the, the meat and the, everything in the festival afterwards and we sort of say, you know, Your Majesty, that was a marvelous prayer that you prayed and I'm just curious to know if you could tell me a bit more about your God, this God who keeps his promises. Uh, because I'm interested in finding out because I'm a foreigner here in Jerusalem and I want to know more about your God. Uh, and I think then Solomon would have taken you aside and said, well, I was talking about God's promise to my father, David. But of course, I could take you much further back than that. I could take you back to Mount Sinai and to the promises that God made to Moses, that he will be our God and we will be his people. And he built this relationship with us as people. Or he might say, I could take you back above all to our father Abraham, the ancestor of our people that God would not only make us a great nation and give us this land to live in, but that ultimately through this people, God would bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. That's the promise of God, which Solomon in his day could hardly have even imagined what that would mean. I mean, he had a, a little empire, few nations that he had subdued, but the whole, the idea that somehow God would bless all the nations on the earth through this people and from this place, his temple, must have been unimaginable. And yet they imagined it with the imagination of faith. God will bless the nations. That was the God who keeps his promises. That promise to Abraham, by the way, that God will bless all the nations on the earth is actually the gospel. Did you know that? Paul calls it the gospel in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul is writing to Gentiles, people who were not Jews, they had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, but they were Galati, that means Gauls, Celts. It's actually the same word. They were sort of the early Irish people actually down there in southern Turkey. Um, and they had a reputation even then for bad behavior and drunkenness. So not a lot changes among all the other things that change over the years. So here are these wild Galati people, the Galatians, who have come to faith in Jesus. And Paul tells them that they now belong to God's people. They are part of God's people. Why? Because God promised that. Here's Paul. He says, understand then that those who have faith meaning faith in Jesus, of course, are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Gentiles, nations is the same word. And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Literally, pre-evangelized Abraham is what the text says. And then he quotes from Genesis, all nations will be blessed through you. So, says Paul, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul says, you can be part of the people of God because God made that promise to Abraham thousands of years ago that people like you, foreigners, outsiders, Gentiles, would come into the blessing of God's salvation and belong to his people. So you see, that's the God who keeps his promise. And that promise of God to Abraham has been all through human history for these thousands of years, that has been God's agenda, God's mission, God's purpose is to bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. And you see, all our mission, whatever we do in our missionary efforts, whether here or abroad or to the ends of the earth, it all depends upon the fact that God keeps his promises. If God wasn't keep going to keep his promise to Abraham, there wouldn't be any point in us getting involved in mission at all. But he will, and he does. 
when this church began, or the congregation began, those 150 years ago, and it's a, it's a joy to, to read David's book. I was just beginning it last night after I went home to look back on those days in the um, middle and later part of the 19th century. The vast majority of those in the world who would have called themselves Christians lived in the north, that is in Europe and in North America and in other parts of the sort of Western world like Australia and New Zealand. But only that was about 90% of, of the world's Christians, hardly any elsewhere in the world, but maybe 10% even by 1910 in the great Edinburgh Conference. Today, 150 years later, the majority of those in the world who would call themselves Christians are living outside the West, at least 70%. We are now the minority church in the West. We are almost marginal to global Christianity. There's a multinational church and multi-directional mission uh, among brethren and Anglicans and so on all over the world because God keeps his promise to Abraham. So when those very early Christian believers were meeting in Christopher Street and in the Albert Hall, the Albert Memorial Hall and here and sharing the gospel with other people in Belfast and people are coming to faith, God is keeping his promise to Abraham. And when the gospel reaches to the very ends of the earth, even before that, God is keeping his promise to Abraham. And so there will come a day which we look forward to, the, what used to be out there until he comes, when he comes again. And then the vision of Revelation will come true where we read there in Revelation that there will be people from every tribe and nation and language gathered before the throne of God singing the praises of the Lamb. And I imagine God turning to Abraham and saying, there you are, mate, see? I kept my promise. I said, all nations on the earth will be blessed through you, and all nations it is, and we will be there among them. And one final thought from that before we move on to the next point. You see, if God is the God who keeps his promises and has been doing so globally through the whole of human history, how much more will God be able to keep his promise to you if at this moment, for some issue or other, you need to trust him. And pretty certainly there will be those in the room, in this church today, for whom the need to know that God keeps his promises is actually very important. For a family reason, or because God is calling you to step out in faith, to do some act of obedience, to go to some place, to change a job, to do something that you know God wants you to do, but can you trust him? And this text says, yes, you can, because he is the God who keeps his promises, and there's no other God like him. So that's the first thing that we see here in this passage, and I need to keep moving along, because what Solomon then does, if I can come back to my text here in 1 Kings, is he then says to God, now look, Lord, I know that uh, even the heavens can't contain you, let alone this little building that I've built. So I'm not expecting you to live here but would you please put your name here in this building so that when we pray to you here uh, and we pray either in this temple or towards it, would you hear in heaven your dwelling place and as you hear our prayers, please you know, forgive or do whatever it is. And he makes a little list of some of the things that he wants God to answer. Maybe that some wrong has been done or there's been a defeat in battle or there's been some famine or plague or disease. Lord, hear our prayer, he says. And then in verse 41, he says this, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel. 
Now, what would you imagine would come after that word there in verse 41? I sometimes used to set that as a test question when I was teaching the Old Testament in India and write that down and put a blank afterwards. You know, fill, fill in the blank. And many people would imagine, well, as for the foreigner, you know, keep them out of this place. You know, they're unclean. We don't want their kind in here. No, no, keep them out because this is your holy place and we are your holy people. But remarkably, what Solomon prays is this. Now let me read to you verses 41 to 43. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name, your reputation, in other words, and your mighty hand and outstretched arm. And when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and know that this house that I have built bears your name. It's quite remarkable, isn't it, what Solomon prays here? In fact, it's remarkable for a number of reasons. But first of all, what he assumes, you see the assumption that's built in here? Solomon assumes that people of other lands, foreign peoples, will hear about the God of Israel, will hear about this Yahweh God, and will be curious and will want to come to this city of Jerusalem and this temple because they are attracted to something about this God of Israel that will be known. How would that happen? Well, I don't know. But Solomon assumes that people will want to come to hear the living God. There'll be something magnetic about this God of Israel. But secondly, he assumes that they will actually come and want to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem and will pray to this God, even if they're just tourists, you know, uh, and they just come to worship, but they will pray to the God of this temple. They may have lots of other gods that they have in their own country, but here they come and they know this is Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. Let's offer a prayer to him. And so Solomon has this amazing assumption, not only that God will hear their prayer and that they will come, but that God would even answer their prayer and would want to answer them rather than drive them away. Lord, hear them and do whatever they ask. So you can imagine this picture here. This is the city of Jerusalem. And we know because we're told elsewhere that it was quite a cosmopolitan city in Solomon's time. Uh, there were foreign ambassadors there. There were business people there. There was a kind of cultural center, a sort of university that Solomon was running with all sorts of inquiries going on. And there's even the Queen of Sheba who turns up, you know, the mother of all tourists. She just comes to gawp at the buildings and the silver and the gold until she faints because she can't stand it anymore. And then she praises Solomon. So here is this city with people coming from all over the place, foreigners who don't belong to Israel. And yet, Solomon prays that God would answer their prayer. And I just see here, not just you see the God who keeps his promise, but outsiders who are seeking God's blessing. And these, what Solomon prays is that God would so hear their prayers and do what they want, do what they pray for, that then the name of the Lord would be increasingly known among the foreign nations. It's a missionary prayer, isn't it? Can you see the motivation? Not just the assumptions and the content, but do whatever the foreigner asks you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Isn't, 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 I mean, is that a missionary prayer? Well, all the peoples on the earth, Lord, I want them all to know how great you are. It's an amazing prayer. 
we know that Solomon was, you know, he was a bit of an entrepreneur, wasn't he? He was, he was quite a businessman. He did a lot of trading around the place. And here's, here's Solomon who is concerned for customer service, right? He, he sort of says to God, look, God, you know, if you will answer the prayer of even one foreigner and do what he asks, what's he going to do? He's going to tell his family, isn't it? They'll come and pray to you as well. And then if you answer their prayers, they're going to tell other friends, and they're going to come and wait. For you know, Lord, your name is going to be known all over the earth. Multiply the name of the Lord by answering their prayers. And you know that's happening in many parts of the world today, like in the book of Acts. Uh, my wife and I lived in India for quite a number of years. Uh, well, not quite a number, five, actually, to be precise. Uh, but when we were there in the 1980s, the northern parts of India the so-called Hindi Belt, was actually known as the graveyard of mission because there was so little fruit for, you know, a couple of centuries of Christian missionary work in that part of the world. Very, very few Christians, hardly any. Today, there are thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of people in that part of India who have become followers of Jesus. They don't necessarily use the word Christian, but they're Jesus followers and they're worshiping Jesus. And you know why that happens? It's because there's a, a mission up there which is entirely Indian, and these young folk who have some of them only become believers themselves for a few years, who go to the villages two, two by two, or just a few of them to the village, and they sit and they chat with the people and they ask them about their lives and what they're doing and how they're getting on and what problems they have. And they say, well, you know, our cows are sick or the well is drying up or, you know, my son has got an illness or something. And they say, well, could we pray for you? And they say, yeah, of course you can pray for us because Indians are very religious people. Well, we pray to Jesus. Jesus is our God. We pray to our, well, pray to any God you like, you know, because they believe in all these gods. So they pray to Jesus. And guess what? Jesus answers prayer. We know that, don't we? And Jesus answers prayer and things happen People come to believe in them, and then they teach them the Scriptures. They teach them from the beginning the story of, of the whole Bible, and they begin, and eventually they baptize them, and they bring them to faith, and they create little Christian communities, and the name of God is glorified. And so that's Solomon's prayer for outsiders who seek God's blessing and pray that God will bless them so that the name of the Lord will be known. And isn't that also, should be for us, the highest motivation? is that what we want is that the name of the Lord, which means, of course, for us, the Lord Jesus Christ should be known to the ends of the earth, that he should be the one who is recognized to be the one who answers prayer, that he should be the one who is being worshipped and honored and glorified, even for those for whom becoming followers of Jesus may well mean persecution and exclusion, in some cases, martyrdom. So the outsiders who will come to seek God's blessing. That remained quite a feature of Israel's faith through the Old Testament. Sadly, often the people of Israel themselves didn't observe it. They became very hostile to outsiders and foreigners, as we know from some of the other books in the Old Testament. But some of their worship still says it, like Psalm 67, where, uh, where the psalmist prays, the Lord be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your ways may be known on your earth and your salvation among all the nations. May all the peoples praise you, O Lord. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. That was a thread in Israel's life and faith and always was. I wonder if it's so for us as well. Who are the outsiders who are seeking God's blessing around us? Now, we sometimes think of them as people in foreign countries where our missionaries and mission partners go but there are plenty of outsiders here in Belfast too, aren't there? 
And I was talking to a brother who was saying the building just across from you is going to be an Islamic center that's been bought perhaps with a, a worship place, a mosque, and so on in there. And there are so many international students around, and I know that Crescent Church is deeply involved with them, and that's wonderful. And so it's easy for us sometimes to, to become a bit close in on ourselves and to sometimes have a little bit of suspicion or a bit of fear about whether or not, you know, outsiders are as welcome as they should be. I wonder if it would help us just to remember, if that's ever the way we feel, that we were all outsiders once. You remember what Paul said to the Ephesians who were Gentiles? And he said, you need to remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. That's what you once were, and that could apply to every single one of us in this building. We used to be outsiders. But, says Paul, now in the Messiah Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And therefore it is for us to draw others near as well and bring them in. That's missional magnetism, making the gospel attractive and seeing who are the outsiders who are seeking God's blessing. So that leads me to a third and final point. We thought about the God who keeps his promises. That's where Solomon starts. And then we thought about outsiders who are seeking God's blessing. That's what he prays for in the middle of his prayer. And finally, there's the people who keep God's commands. Because at the end of his prayer, at the last part of 1 Kings chapter 8, if you have your Bible there, look at what he says in verses 60 and 61. 1 Kings 8, 60 and 61 so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. That's the missional dimension of his prayer. And you, may your hearts, he's speaking to the people, may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. And that, of course, is the great emphasis of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. God says, you will be my people, and I will shower my blessings on you, but also you are to have me as your God, and to obey me, and to fulfill my ways, and to walk in the ways of the Lord, and to live according to God's ways. So here is the challenge that comes at the end of this. And in a sense, this is where uh, this text moves us from looking back to the God who has kept his promises all through these past 150 years for, for you as a community, to looking forward to a renewal of the commitment to have hearts that are fully committed to the Lord our God to keep his commands and to walk in his ways. And of course, to keep his commands includes the whole of our lives, our businesses, our, our homes, our schools, our professions, whatever it is we do that we're trying to walk in the ways of the Lord, but it also, of course, includes our obedience to that last great command that Jesus gave to his disciples. All authority is given to me. He is the Lord God. He is the only living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and bringing them into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what we're called into obedience for. So God has kept his promise and will always keep his promise because that's the God he is. Outsiders will be seeking God's blessing in whatever way they think and whether they know anything much about our God at all. 
They will be looking for a blessing, something good in life. Will we be sharing the gospel with them in order to bring them in? The question then is, will we be, as Solomon says here, will we be the people who will keep God's commands and walk in God's ways and live for the Lord in the days ahead for the next 150 years or however long until he comes? Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so alive and powerful that it can speak right across the centuries, even across the millennia, to us today. And we thank you that you built into this prayer of Solomon so much truth about yourself and about your desire for those who do not yet know you and for your ultimate promise that your name will be known to the ends of the earth. And then the Lord will return and we shall join with people from every tribe and nation and we pray that you will keep us faithful and keep this church faithful in the years that lie ahead to that calling and that commitment. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.